It's interesting how your perspective changes as you're climbing to your death. It's interesting how a 75-pound patibulum can feel like the weight of the world's upon your head. It's interesting how you walk the Via della Rosa towards your inevitable future. What your mind is on a journey of its own into your past. Calculating, questioning, pondering, wishing you would have done things different. Wishing there was another way, wishing there was another chance, wishing there was a little bit more grace. But I've had my share and more. And I'm not even sure if when I'm gone, my mother will mourn. Cause I'm a murderer, a cheater, a thief. And I wish I could, but I can't deny it, that's me. I'm a broken man with a yet to be broken body. My blood poured out for the purpose of nothing. I live for nothing, so now I die for just the same. And I look around to see two others carrying this burden of shame. One like me is worthy of blame, but another that these Pharisees chained. And he's seen the fist and the flagellum to the extreme. He's a dead man walking, or so it seems. And this man struggles to carry his dreaded beam. But in an instant, he lifts his head and he looks at me. And glaring into his eyes, I know that this man with flesh torn from bone, who do torture and a trade for his throne, is a man who calls heaven his home. But as we near our destination, he begins to struggle to carry his wooden affliction. And I watch him fall to the ground, and with a burst of frustration, the officer yells to Roman citizen, come carry this man's burden. And I wonder if that man knew what he put on his shoulders. I wonder if he knew he was carrying the weight of the world for eternity's author. I wonder if he would ever understand that that cross was so much more than the work of a carpenter. And as we arrive at Calvary, the place of the skull and our malignity, I find relief in abandoning this weight of gravity, but terror in knowing the fate of my own destiny. And these soldiers, they begin the process of Roman sovereignty. This language of torture is one that they speak fluently, and I push back onto the surface of that dreaded beam, with my arms stretched out, God's holding them down, those nine-inch nails driven through me just as precise as maliciously, and I'm lifted up and placed on that vertical beam, followed by the nails driven through the bones of my feet, and with these nails in my hands and wrists, holding on for every last gasp of breath, I'm suffocated underneath the weight of myself, just like I live never for anyone else, so in an effort to breathe, I lift myself, pushing on the nails of my feet, to finally be able to exhale for the life of me, and I fall back underneath the weight of gravity, entering into this pattern of misery and attempt to find peace. And I shuffle, I pull, I twist, entering into the sequence of a dance of death that in the midst of all of this, the crowd goes louder, and the criminal opposite of me joins in the banter, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But you foolish man, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? For we are punished justly. We are getting what we deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. So my Messiah, my Savior, my King, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's interesting how one man can change everything. It's interesting how one promise can make death feel like life, darkness look like light, and bring hope into the line of sight. Oh, it's more than interesting. It's scandalous what this man has done for us. For you, for me, the anything but worthy. For murderer, cheater, and thief, for the identities that flag me. But they're no longer my story. For this promise of paradise bought at prodigious price was so much more than angelic harmonies and orchestra music to my ears. It was life to my soul. But what love is this? That a perfect man will lay down his life. 
that a sinless savior would become the ultimate sacrifice. The holy son of man, like a traitor, he was punished. He exclaimed with his dying breath, it is finished. So he gave his life and everything he had to give us everything we'll ever need. This man has set us free. I have this really vivid memory of being, I don't know, probably about nine or 10 years old, and I was at this church retreat, camping Royal Ranger event. There were hundreds of people from Ohio there, and in the, one of the evenings, they had a, an outdoor service, so you had music, and you had preaching, and uh, there's was, there was probably a bonfire, all kinds of things that were happening. The only thing I can actually remember is being outside and around the perimeter of the the, the area where everybody was at, it kind of marked it off, and they had some crosses that were there because the whole focus was about what Jesus had done for us. And I remember that I was seated kind of right near one of those crosses, nine, 10 years old. And as I sat there, I kept looking up at it and thinking about what Jesus had done for me. Like, it was so, it was so real and vivid to me what he had experienced because of my sins in that moment. I think it would, it would be interesting to have had a front row seat on Good Friday. I also think it would have been terrifying. I think there's so much about that that to our Western mind and to our 2019 culture that we wouldn't necessarily get or understand. And yet the Gospel of Luke gives us, and in some ways more so than some of the other Gospels, this front row seat to what happened on Good Friday. Today I want to I read to you from Luke chapter 23, the, the story that Luke gives to us about what happened to Jesus on that day, and give us some insight into some of the things that we could see. Our guess is that Luke, the historian, had interviewed some people who had a front row seat. They had been there. They had seen it. And so as we look at this here in, in this room, and those of you that are in Auditorium 2, thanks for joining us. Those of us that are online, we're so glad you're with us today. Let's consider the scene on that Good Friday, Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Consider this scene. Luke, Luke paints a picture for us. He says that there were, there were two other criminals who were crucified with him. Some translations you'll, you'll hear and see in different of the Gospels that referred to as robbers or as thieves. And there's a chance that they were, that they were just kind of your... You're run-of-the-mill criminals in that day and time. And part of the whole motivation of crucifixion was it was a deterrent. It was a public thing. So when you would see someone crucified, you would say to yourself, whatever they did, I'm not going to do that because I don't want that to happen to me. So it could have been that they were, they were criminals, robbers, thieves that we may think of. It's also a really good chance that they were revolutionaries of some kind. If you remember, one of their counterparts was set free earlier in the Gospels, a guy named Barabbas. Do you remember that story? He was the one that was set free, and Jesus literally took his place in the crucifixion. He was a revolutionary. He was a murderer. He was a zealot. And there's a good chance that these other two criminals came from that same group. They were trying to overthrow Rome. They were looking for some kind of revolution. And in the end, instead of getting a revolution, what they got was bitterness 
and jaded and disappointment, and they took him out to a place called the skull. This was the term that was used. It was a Greek term that, that Luke uses here, cranian, like cranium, like we have today when we talk about our, our heads. The Aramaic word is Golgotha. The Latin word for that place is Calvary. That's why our church has the name that it has. It remembers this day and what Jesus did for us. And it said that when these criminals and Jesus were taken to this place called the Skull or Golgotha or Calvary, that they were crucified there. Crucifixion, if you're not familiar with that form of execution, we, we see it in such a sanitized way. We, we see it as just two wood beams, or we see it in the pictures of, of Jesus just simply on a cross, but it was so much more than that. It was a means of execution, and it was a means of exposing people to public humiliation and shame. And the Roman Empire had perfected it, and they practiced it in a lot of different forms, but they knew exactly what they were doing. There was a, there was a main stake the vertical stake that would be in the ground, and it usually remained in the same place, and the victim would carry the cross beam, or what was called the patibulum, and they would carry that, and then they would take it to that place where the polis, or the, the main vertical beam was, and then either like a letter T, or most often in the cross form that we know, that is how they would be attached to that upright beam in that place. Sometimes they were attached there with ropes, or many times, like Jesus was, with nails. And death would be caused by a loss of blood, by exposure, by exhaustion. Most of the time, it, it happened through suffocation. As that individual that was being crucified in those moments would try to lift themselves up to breathe, they knew exactly what they were doing in the placement of the nails, in the placement on the cross, in the torture that would lead up to the crucifixion, to reach the pinnacle of pain and agony. Crucifixion was viewed by ancient writers as the cruelest and most barbaric form of punishment. And in the middle of this, think about this scene for just a moment. He's being led out to be crucified. He's having to carry this beam after being beaten to the point of death almost. Public shame and humiliation. He gets to the place where he's nailed to that cross, and Luke records that Jesus says the words, Father, forgive them. Isn't that an incredible statement? Let's just be honest. It's outrageous, really. It was sweeping. He says of all those people who are mistreating him, Father, would you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. It's outrageous to think that someone would have forgiveness in a moment like that. I sometimes have a hard time thinking random thoughts about the person who cuts me off in traffic. Anybody else? Right? You whip me in a game, it's hard for me to wish you well. It's difficult to forgive the one who nails me with a comment or leaves me hanging when they had a responsibility they were supposed to follow up on. And if it feels like someone has crucified me, you ever heard anybody use that term? They crucified me. I get bitter and jaded. You know what they actually did to Jesus? They actually crucified him. And they cut and they whipped him. And they nailed him to a cross. And they left him hanging there. They crucified him. And yet he forgave them. Doesn't that tell you something about his heart? About who he was? that in that moment he would have such extraordinary love for people. 
Here's just maybe a, a side note for us to think about in our own lives. Your response to crisis reveals your character. Isn't that true? How you respond in the midst of a crisis, it says something about who you are. It's easy for me to stay calm and cool and collected when everything's going well. Can I get an amen? <laughs> but you put a little pressure on me, and I can have a tendency to raise my voice when I shouldn't or to make a big deal out of things that don't matter. Anybody else? <laughs> Sorry, Rhonda. <laughs> right? In those moments, crisis says something about our character. Imagine the character of Jesus. That in that moment, what he offered to them, that, that the thought was even on his mind in that moment to offer forgiveness. This gives you a hint into something that we need to grasp about him. There's something special about Jesus. And look, our, our world and our culture, we make a big deal out of certain things today. But there was something really special about Jesus. And he wasn't just a great teacher, and he wasn't some historic figure, and he didn't just model good leadership. There's something more for him. When we talk about him as a teacher or as a historic figure or as a leader, those are all true things. They're safe descriptions. And yet there's one that's a little more revolutionary. There's one that, that, that stretches us a little bit, one we're not so sure about sometimes. Jesus wasn't just those things. Listen to what Paul says about him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul writes, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Jesus is God. He's not just any other man. This is, this is what makes what happened on such a bad Friday something we call Good Friday. Jesus is God. Go back to Luke's front row seat. Luke chapter 23, verse 35. It says, the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Crucifixion was, to begin with, we've already talked about this, not only excruciatingly painful, but it was a humiliating way to die. That public execution would say to those who saw it, if you don't want this to happen to you, don't break the law. But it was humiliating in that moment, and especially in this incident, because if you think about it, what were the, what were the rulers doing? What were the Jewish leaders doing? They're taunting Jesus in this moment because they'd won for a long time. They had wanted to shut him up and shut him down because the things that they were hearing him say were threatening their authority. And if their authority got threatened, so did their income. They did not like him at all. And so now they have their moment. You think you're such a hot shot? You think you know more than we do? You think you've got all the right teaching? You think you can roll into this town and try to get people to think differently about us? If you're such a big deal, why don't you save yourself? You think you're the Messiah? What kind of Messiah are you now? You have to realize that crucifixion was the worst thing that a mother could dream would happen to their child. And you'll see this three times in this passage here today. You'll see it from the rulers, you'll see it from the soldiers, and in a moment you're going to see it from one of the individuals who is crucified with Jesus, that the words come out of their mouths, why don't you save yourself? Be honest, if, if you read it with an open heart, for those of us that love Jesus, 
picturing him in that moment, people saying those things to him, it hurts. It's a painful thing. Even today, though, if we're honest, people are consistently questioning Jesus, who he is, who he was. And I ask myself the question, why do we question Jesus? I want to park there for just a moment. Because when so many people question him, we ask, why, why question Jesus? I had a doctor's appointment the other day, and I went walking up to the window, and the, the, the person that was registering, checking me in, you know what it's like when you go to the doctor, they, they, they said to me, can I see your driver's license? And I thought, well, I'm not going to fake going to the doctor. You know, you think that, right? I don't want to go for somebody else. But sure, yeah, you can have my driver's license, right? If you go to the airport, they want your identification, you go to check in at a hotel, they want to know, are you who you say you are? If you're going to purchase something, sometimes with a credit card, they'll say, hey, can we, can we see your identification? Every year, this time of year, if you'll notice in magazines and cable TV miniseries, we, 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 we pursue this idea, is Jesus who he said he was? Who was Jesus? What do we know about this historical figure named Jesus? Have you seen that? Like we ask these questions. They were asking it when he was on the cross. Why do we question him? Even more so, why do we have a hard time accepting sometimes who he said he was? I think we question him because we dismiss his claims sometimes. You know, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the one who would come to save us. In verse 38, where it says that they put a sign over his head that says, here is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. That, that wasn't a statement of royalty. That was an act of humiliation. You want to be the king? Here's, here's your sign. Because they dismissed his claims. They dismissed who he said he was. And people really do that today as well. Maybe some of you go, is he, is he really God? I'll give him a teacher. I'll give him a leader. I'll give him a historic figure. Was, it, was he really God? In fact, sometimes we even ask the question, is there even a God at all? Sometimes we dismiss his claims. Other times we doubt his ability. Right? Isn't that what they were saying to him? Look, if you saved others, why don't you save yourself? You think you got all this power, Jesus? Why don't you do something with it? You can't even save yourself. Many times we think in that same way. We doubt his ability. Sometimes I'll, I'll hear people say, well, look, that whole Jesus thing is good for you. I'm happy for you. I'm glad it works for you. It's just, it just doesn't work for me. It's not what I'm looking for. I'm glad you believe it, but I don't really believe it. Sometimes there's another angle in that that people will say. They say, hey, I'm, I'm really glad you, you found something and all that Jesus stuff, but I'm not so sure that even Jesus could forgive me. I'm not sure there's hope for someone that they could ever love or forgive me. A third, a third reason that we see why people question Jesus, and I think you see it here, is ultimately we deny his lordship. We deny his lordship. Like, ultimately, that's, that's what he came. And, and this, in spite of the other two, this is what it comes down to. If you're familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis, he, he in, in one of his books, I believe it was Mere Christianity, he gives us this, this idea for us to think through. He says, you need to realize that Jesus has to be one of three things. He is either a liar because he came and said he was the son of God, and if he's not, that that makes him a liar, or he's a lunatic because he said he was the son of God, and if he really thought he was and he's not, then he's crazy. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, anybody know, or he's the, he's the Lord. 
He's got to be one of those three. He's either who he said he was, or he's crazy, or he's a con man. Either this whole thing's a scam, or it's based on someone who was insane, or he's actually who he said he was. And all of us have to, have to take a moment and think about that. Who do I believe Jesus? And on a day like today, when we remember what he did on the cross, it's such a powerful thing. Who do I believe Jesus was? Because there's a statement that all these people around the cross seem to be taunting him with, making it him. They're saying, save yourself, save yourself. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But I think that's an interesting thought because isn't that what so many of us want to do? <laughs> like, like that's our culture. That's who we are. We work hard. We try hard. We have these dreams that what I do is somehow going to save me, make a difference in my life. And we strive to be able to save ourselves. People would like to think that they could save themselves. Any of you ever been on a cruise ship? Do you know what I'm talking about? If you've been on a cruise ship, maybe, uh, like, like, raise your hand. How many have ever been to Alaska? Anybody ever cruised to Alaska? Because some of you have done that. Any, anybody ever done a cruise, like, up through New England, like, on the, 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 the northern part of the eastern coast? Like, some people have done that kind of thing. Anybody ever cruised in the Caribbean? Yeah, like, that's, when you're in Ohio, that's the vast majority of people, <laughs> right? I'll get Alaska in February, right? I mean, you're like, no, if I'm going to cruise, I'm, I'm going to the Caribbean because there I'm going to have the breezes and the sunshine, and the palm trees, and if you're from Ohio, the sunburn, right? You're going to get all of that. Ron and I have, have cruised a few times, and the last time I remember we were sitting out kind of in the afternoon, the ship's just out in the middle of nowhere, which I think I've shared before. Two of my, like, really uncomfortable things are heights and open water. <laughs> Go on a cruise ship, right? So we're sitting there, and... Uh, you know, like I'm keeping a safe distance from the railing, and all of a sudden I start having this thought. I'm like, wonder what would happen if somebody fell off this boat? Let's be honest. The thought was, wonder what would happen if I fell off this boat? Like, Rhonda's like, I'm calling the insurance company, right? I mean, that's the, you know, like, <laughs> that's what's going on. And you just start thinking that through, and I'm like, how, would they even know? Like, would, would they know that I'm just kind of out here? Like, you can't see land. You're just floating out there? I mean, at the very best, your hope would be is that someone would, I don't know, maybe throw you a life jacket. <laughs> and, and there you are, and you're kind of floating out there, but the ship's gone, and the reality is you might say to yourself, I'm a well-dressed man in a life jacket. I, you might say to yourself, I'm all right. I got this life jacket. Although it's not going to make that much of a difference in the big picture unless somebody comes and gets you, right? <laughs> because at some point, there's nothing around you. I don't care if you're Michael Phelps. <laughs> you're stuck out there. Like, and if the heat doesn't get you, then the, the dehydration will. You're not going to be able to eat. You're going to have the sun. And at some point, the only song in your head is, Right? And you might say to yourself, I'm cool, I'm out here. I got my life jacket. I'm saved. You're not saved. You're just floating. You're not saved until somebody comes to get you, right? And how many things do we grab hold of in life and we think to ourselves, I'm all right. This will keep me afloat. 
your relationships might keep you afloat for a while. That, that hope you find in that person that you're with, the reality that you think maybe I won't be alone anymore or maybe my life has meaning now, but at some point, even your relationships at their very best are just keeping you afloat for a while, but they're not gonna save you. Look, the truth is, we look at all kinds of things, our good works. Maybe if I just do enough good works, that'll help to keep me afloat. Maybe it's the things that we want. Maybe if I can just get more money. Maybe if I can just get more power. Maybe if I can just get more influence. Maybe that will make a difference in my life. And it's the stuff that we want. At the very best, it just keeps you afloat for a while. Maybe it's the stuff that I take. Maybe it's the things that I drink. Maybe it's the things that I put in my body. Maybe it's the things that I entertain myself with. At their very best, they just keep you afloat for a while. But they're not going to save you. You know what one of the biggest life jackets I think is that we put on ourselves to try to save ourselves? It's religion. And we think if I just go to church or if I just follow the rules or if I just get people to think about me a certain way, then I'll be okay. At its very best, all it does is keep you afloat. And you're just out there in the elements until at some point, someone or something can actually come along and save you. The reality is, I, I try to put so many things on my life, you and I do, and we go, look, maybe this thing will save me. But if you're out there, this thing is never going to save you. What's going to save you is when someone comes and is your savior. Does that make sense? Look, we cannot save ourselves. It's not possible. You're not going to be able to do it. We all need a savior. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. There's clearly a, a, a tone of selfishness in this dude's voice. Now, look, he's right. He knew he needed saving. He, he's, he's being crucified. And the bitterness of life, I believe, had made him a bitter person. And I'm not being hard on him. I, I can't imagine what it would like to be him in that moment. But focusing on the reality of that situation, his focus in that moment was on mocking Jesus because Jesus wasn't doing for him what he wanted him to do. He wanted Jesus to save him in a way that was of his time and of his choosing, and Jesus wasn't doing it. Look, for some of us, it's good for us to recognize life is not about what Jesus can do for you. It's about you realizing who Jesus is. See, sometimes my perception of Jesus is just what can he do for me instead of recognizing who he really is. And these two guys on the cross, these two guys who are crucified with Jesus, they give us such a healthy, helpful perspective. So when you face the difficult moments of your life, recognize that you have a choice. You will either reject a Savior's love or receive a Savior's salvation. You will either reject a Savior's love like this one thief did, or you will receive a Savior's salvation. He makes this statement. He says, why don't you save yourself? Save yourself and us. And the soldier said, save yourself. And the ruler said, he can't even save himself. And here's the big deal. Jesus didn't come to save himself. He made that clear long time before this. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
He never came to save himself. That was never his focus. Let's go back to our story, verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. So this is the guy on one side speaking to the guy on the other side. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, I know we don't get a lot of words from this guy that was crucified on on one side of Jesus, but if you break down his words, it tells us so much about what was going on in his heart. He says, don't you fear God? He's saying to that other criminal, don't you realize that that, that there's this gap between us? Don't, Don't you realize who God is and how far you are from him? Like the truth is, and this is something that's essential for us to get a hold of, there is a separation between us and God. He is holy, and I am not. And I can say with great confidence, because I know a lot of you, he is holy, and you are not. (laughs) Right? No one is. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, to the point that this guy says, look, we are getting what we deserve. Sometimes it's a, a satisfaction that comes to us that isn't right, to look at somebody else and go, they're getting what they deserve. You ever been there? You kind of feel that? I don't like it when I look in the mirror and think that. That guy's getting what he deserves. These two guys on the cross, look, we're getting what we deserve. But it's an essential part of understanding this story that you know what each one of us deserves? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And because of that separation between us and God, what we deserve is life forever without him. We deserve punishment. The Bible says that we deserve hell because of the way that we've responded to God. And what we need is a savior. And the one guy says to the other guy, this guy has done nothing wrong. He's acknowledging what we acknowledged a few moments ago. There's something special about Jesus. Jesus is the Savior and the Lord. He's the one we look to. How how do we find that? How do we make him our Savior and our Lord? Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith. And are saved. In the fall of 1943, Roman soldiers, not Roman soldiers, excuse me, German soldiers began to move through Italy in the city of Rome, and they were trying to round up Jewish people and take them to concentration camps. And during that time, there was this mysterious and deadly disease that they named Syndrome K that swept through the city of Rome. And it caused dozens of patients to be admitted to this very unique hospital. It is called the Fatten Benefratelli. And it is this hospital that is on this island in the middle of the river, the Tiber River that runs through Rome. And it's like on this island, it's isolated. For centuries, actually, it had been used to treat patients who had diseases that were considered highly contagious. And this syndrome K was one of those diseases. It included symptoms like a persistent cough, paralysis leading to death, and it was believed to be highly contagious. 
There's no mention of it in medical textbooks. It was very unique how it broke out. And many people felt like it was, it was very much like tuberculosis, which was highly feared in that time. And so in those times, German soldiers would go to this hospital because they were sweeping through the city and they were looking to round up Jewish people, send them off to concentration camps. And when they would come to the hospital, the doctor would explain, look, what we have behind these doors is syndrome K, and they would explain it. And they didn't know if it was tuberculosis. They didn't know if it was cancer. Those German soldiers just knew. They said, you know what? Never mind. We don't need to go in there. What's interesting about this is that syndrome K was a made-up disease. It wasn't even real. There was a doctor. His name was Borromeo, and Jewish people would come to him. There was a neighborhood that was raided by German soldiers, and Jewish people would come to him seeking asylum at this hospital in the middle of this island. If you look at an aerial picture, you can see where they have to cross these bridges to get over to this hospital, and they were seeking asylum, and so they decided that they would make up an illness, that they would admit them into this hospital so that they could be protected from the German soldiers. And they named it Syndrome K because it was named after two of the key German officers whose, first, whose last name began with the letter K. And so if you had Syndrome K, it didn't mean you were going to die. It meant you were going to be saved. But they had to make a choice. If they wanted to be saved, they had to get to the place where they could find a savior. They had to cross a bridge from the life they were in to get to a place where they could find a life where they could live. Syndrome K was a fake disease. Sin is not. The Bible says that because of our sin, all of us face death. And the only way that we can live eternally is to find eternal life in a savior. His name is Jesus. But for you to get from death to life, you've got to choose to cross that bridge and accept his promise of salvation. What's that look like? Go back with me. Verse 42. Then the criminal said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Think about what he did here. He, he doesn't know Jesus, he just says to him, will you remember me? In his dying breath, he puts all of his trust and confidence in Jesus as the one who can save him. If you want to know what salvation is, salvation begins with complete surrender. It comes when you say, I can't do this on my own anymore. God, without you, I can't make it. I need you in my life. And he says, I want to be into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me. See, what he found immediately was hope. Hope is found when we have faith for our future. And that hope is only found in Jesus Christ. Listen to a familiar passage, John 3, 16. It's in a bit of a different wording than you might be used to. This is from the message version of the Bible. But it says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed by believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. God loved the world, so he sent his son to die for you. Do you believe that? And here's what's interesting. I'm, 
I'm really glad for your sake that I wasn't the son of God who had to die. I'm not so sure I would have done it. And I'm not so sure I would have promised you any kind of paradise. I think I'd have asked you some questions first. I probably would have done an interview before I'd have made you some kind of promise. Anybody else like that? <laughs> not Jesus. Listen to what he doesn't say. Jesus did not say, first you need to clean yourself up. He didn't look over at that criminal and go, look, you got to stop doing some of those bad things. You promise me you'll never steal again? <laughs> he doesn't do that. He doesn't look at him. Jesus did not say, first, you have to earn my love. He doesn't say, first, you, you got to earn my love. You got to get these things right. You got you to make sure that you do these things. First, start doing the right things, and then I'll love you. Did Jesus say that? No, he doesn't say you got to clean self up. He doesn't say you need to earn my love. Nor does Jesus say this. Jesus did not say, first, you need to understand theology. Like, we do that a lot of times. You know, before we talk to you about Jesus, you need to understand the ramifications of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Then I want you to know about Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross and what that meant for justification in the sight of God. And then we're going to study an eschatological impacts of Christ's sacrificial death. Are you okay with that? And then we'll pray. Did Jesus do that? Are all those things important? Critically so. Like, we want to understand what God's word teaches, but that's not what Jesus did. He didn't say that to the thief in the cross. Do you know what he said? Jesus said, I want you to be with me today. He didn't say, clean yourself up. He didn't say, let me know that you really love me first. He didn't say, when you understand then. He said, you know where it begins? It begins with you putting your trust in me and realizing that I'm your Savior and your Lord. This is the story of a wretched thief and a wonderful Savior who's dying to love and ready to forgive. Isn't that good news? And we're going to remember that today. That's why at this service, we always take time to share in communion. I want to invite those that are going to help us with communion to go ahead. And I know, I know you need to step out quickly and prepare for that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come at this time. You, you may remember from like a 10th grade history class, a guy named Copernicus. He, he was the guy that figured out that the earth actually revolves around the sun not that the sun revolves around the earth. He was the first one to say the, the world does not revolve around you. Anybody? <laughs> right? And when he was dying, these were his dying words. He said, I do not ask for the grace, God, that you gave St. Paul, nor can I dare to ask for the grace that you granted to St. Peter, but the mercy which you did show to the dying robber, that mercy... I ask you to show to me. I'm thankful that for a wretched criminal, the Bible shows us, Jesus was willing to die to show his love, and he was quick to forgive. Does anybody know what, what today is outside of Good Friday? What's, what's the date today? Does anybody know? It's April 19th, or as... Those of us who are a little full of ourselves like to say, it's 419. <laughs> it's 419 day. It's our day. Every other area code today, they're losers. Can I get an amen? <laughs> today is 419 day. Now look, I'm not bold and self-centered enough to say that God would want us to know about his love on 419 day just because he loves all of us in Northwest Ohio more than he loves everybody else? 
but I'd be okay with that thought, right? <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be all right with that. The problem is next year, Good Friday will be 410 day. <laughs> I don't know who that is, but I don't like them, right? I mean, that's just kind of the, it's kind of the thing. Here's the deal. I, I don't think that I can make some kind of case and say Good Friday is on 419 day because God loves you so much. But I can tell you this, I can't think of any better day for you to make things right with God than 419 day because you'll never forget what day you found eternal life. Every year 419 day comes around, you're, you're gonna remember that was the day that I realized that Jesus loved me so much that he died on a cross for me. That was the day that I recognized that I could never save myself, but what I need is a savior. That was the day that you would remember that no matter who you are, God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And it's interesting because over and over again, people said in this passage, Jesus, if you're such a big deal, why don't you save yourself? Know this, Jesus didn't save himself because he was dying to save you. That's what Good Friday is all about. He loved you so much that he died for you. And so before we, we come to the Lord's table today, I want to ask this. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Whether you're here in Auditorium 1 or in Auditorium 2 or if you're, you're watching on a screen somewhere, my, my, my question for you is, do you know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? When we use that word Savior, we mean the one who forgives us. And when we use that word Lord, we mean the one who gives purpose and meaning to our lives. And if you know him as your Savior and your Lord, then that's a life-changing thing. But if you're here today and you'd say, Chad, I can't do this on my own anymore. Today, I need to make Jesus the Savior and Lord of my life. Would you just raise your hand? If that's you, just raise your hand today. I can't do it on my own anymore. I need Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord. You raise your hand, put it right back down. It's just between you and God. If you'd say, today, I need him as my Savior and my Lord. Raise your hand, put it right back down. If you raised your hand or if you know that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, would you pray this with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus, for sending your Son to die for my sin. I ask today that you would forgive my sin and be my Savior. I give my life to you, my risen Lord. Help me, God to live for you in Jesus' name, amen. Look, if you prayed that prayer for the first time on your way out today, I hope you'll grab one of these cards that says, I have decided, and you can take that to our Connection Center in the atrium. There we have a friend that would like to meet with you, pray with you. We have a gift we wanna give to you and just wanna talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna invite the ushers to come at this time, and uh, we are gonna prepare to go to the Lord's table and spend a time in communion today. Paul gives us instructions about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then we invite you to join us in this time of communion. In just a moment, the ushers will distribute the elements. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. The cup represents his shed blood. We ask that you hold on to those things until everyone's been served, and then we're going to share in those together. But in these next few moments, would you search your heart? And I hope you'll take time. 
to thank Jesus for his sacrifice and what he did for us on that good Friday on that cross so many years ago. Father, in this time, we ask that you would turn our hearts to remember in Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, you may serve. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That he should give his only son To make a wretch's treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turned his face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory Take a moment and in your own heart, just thank the Lord. Thank you, God, for mercy and grace that I never deserved. Thank you for your love that even though I have rejected it, you offer it. It's an unfailing love. 
to love with no strings attached. We thank you for your love, God. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. That you would be willing to face death on the cross to pay for my salvation. Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, as we hold the bread in our hands, we thank you for your sacrifice. Jesus, that in spite of my sin, in spite of our failures, you have loved us so much. While we were still sinners, you died for us. On this Good Friday, we remember this as we share in the bread together. Let's share in the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ because the life is in the blood. Forgiveness is in the blood. Healing is in the blood of Jesus. So we thank you for your sacrifice, for life that you have brought to us as we share in the cup together in Jesus' name. Let's share in the cup together. I ask you to stand with me, if you would, please. And again, want to say thank you for joining us on this Good Friday. I hope that as you go through the day, God will show you reminders of his great love for you, what he wants to do in your life because of his sacrifice, and also be reminded that Good Friday is not the end of the story. Amen? We will be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ the next two days. If you do not have a church home, we would invite you to join us tomorrow on Saturday. We have services at 4 and at 6. And then on Sunday, our regular service times at 8, 15, 10, and 11.45. It is going to be a wonderful celebration with music and God's word of what Jesus has done for us through his death and his resurrection. And I hope that you will take the time to join us and be with us for these really powerful times of worship and celebration together. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, thanks for this reminder on this Good Friday of your loving sacrifice for us. May we not take for granted, Jesus, your death, but may it be a reminder that our lives have purpose, that they have value, that there is forgiveness, hope, and life available to us through Jesus Christ. Now, as we go from here, would you go with us? Send us out with your special favor and with your wonderful peace. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you this weekend.